want to start this morning by talking with you about something that's very important, something that is often overlooked, something that probably there are many people in this room right now, you're doing a poor job of this, and that is posture. Posture is a very important thing. How you stand, how you sit. Right now I see people kind of sitting up straight. Uh, at Beach Retreat, if you've ever been to Beach Retreat, first night Dr. Young walks up. He gets in front of all these teenagers and he says, listen, every night when I get up here to speak, I expect a couple of things from you. First, I expect your eyes on me right here all the time. And then he just stops and he starts looking around the room with these steel blue eyes. And he says, I expect everybody to sit up straight. And the whole room, all of a sudden, like even you as an adult, you're like, I better sit up straight a little bit. And he says, and I expect you to not say a word. And then that first night, at some point, somebody talks and he stops. In the middle of, I mean, 3,000 people, he stops and he, he, he glares at him. He finds him and he says, I'm disappointed in you. And then the rest of the week, man, I'm telling you, you can hear any moment. You can hear a pin drop. In the room, 3,000 youth. I, I wouldn't think that's possible. But night two, night three, night four, he walks in the room. The moment he walks up to stage, guess what happens? Everybody sits up straight. Like he doesn't have to say a thing. Everybody just automatically has good posture. They've done studies on posture and how valuable and important good posture is. That when you have good posture, naturally you are breathing in more oxygen. They're not really sure if that is entirely the reason why these other things are true. But if you have good posture, also it puts you naturally in a better mood. It might be because of the oxygen. It might just be because, man, you look really good because you're walking up straight. They found that when you have good posture, your memory and your ability to learn is increased. That's both good posture when you're seated as well as good posture when you're walking around. Good posture is also important when you're doing things, for example, picking up items. If you've ever lifted something that's heavy before, if you have bad posture, if you just lean over and grab it, it doesn't matter how heavy or not heavy it is, poor posture can do really bad things to your back. You're supposed to align your body. That's what posture ultimately is. It's getting things in order in the right direction. It's the alignment of your spine with everything else. And so if you're going to have good posture when you're picking something up, you don't just bend over like that because it, it makes your spine and your alignment get out of order. Instead, you keep your alignment straight. You go down and you're welcome. That was, yeah, I know. This weighs like three pounds, but uh, my posture in picking it up was really solid. Uh, if you've ever thrown your back out before, what causes you to throw out your back is bad posture. I remember the, the worst I've ever thrown out my back in my entire life. We were picking up a couch. It was me and some roommates in college. It was an old couch. And, and of course, we're going upstairs, and it had a bed inside of it, which means it's really heavy. And so we're, we're kind of going all around, and we're almost to the very end. I mean, I've been doing weird contortions with my body, but I've, I've been trying to the best as possible, remain good posture. And then towards the very end, I sneezed. I've got this couch and I sneeze and there was something about the sneeze that just kind of, I don't know what exactly happened with my back, but I felt it. I mean, that moment that I sneezed while holding on to the couch, I was like, oh, oh. And then for, for like six weeks, I, I felt like I could barely walk. I felt like everything was off, all because in that moment, that sneeze caused my posture to be bad. I, I want to talk about posture this morning, but specifically 
I want to talk about the posture of our lives. Not so much the external posture, but the internal posture. We're going to look in Daniel chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to go there. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's one of those famous guys in the Bible for good reason. He does a lot of amazing things. But here's something unique about Daniel in the Bible. Oftentimes, when we see characters in the Bible, we see lots and lots of flaws. So even these huge heroes of the Bible, King David, for example. David is this amazing guy who defeats giants and defeats armies and is this conqueror. And yet, it doesn't shy away from the fact that David had lots of warts. David had lots of things in his life that he failed in, that he suffered in, that he sinned over and over again. You find that is true with every character in the Bible. You you find Moses had faults and Abraham had faults. That there's only a few exceptions to that. One obviously being Jesus, who never sins, who doesn't have any faults. But another is this guy Daniel. That Daniel, at least from what we know about him, he doesn't have these major flaws. He's a guy that starts out in the right direction and continues in the right direction. A little bit of a spoiler alert. He's a guy that goes on to do amazing, amazing things. Daniel most likely lives into his 90s. Over the course of his lifetime, he becomes a trusted advisor to at least four different kings. Now, these are kings that end up being completely different nations from one another. And yet there's something special and unique about Daniel that sets him apart. That he has this wisdom in his life that other people take note. So much so that a new invading king is willing to recognize that wisdom and say, hey, I will take him to become my advisor just as he was that king's advisor. God uses Daniel in amazing, amazing ways. Why? How? The secret sauce, so to speak, of Daniel's life we find in Daniel chapter 1. Let's take a look. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and was with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So you have that first line, that first verse, it's really just history that we know that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he becomes kind of the big bad world power. He starts stomping on everybody else. Israel becomes no different. This is the kingdom of Judah, a little bit of history that you had. The 12 tribes, they become divided. The northern kingdom, 10 tribes. Southern kingdom, the two tribes. Northern kingdom, they end up getting taken over. They've ceased to exist. This is Judah, the southern kingdom. They thought that they were kind of invincible because they had Jerusalem. Turns out that they aren't. Multiple prophets have said, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your wicked ways, and they don't. And so that first verse is simply history that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieges it. And in the second verse, you really see the context of what God in his sovereignty is allowing to happen. That the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That God is using human history for his own divine plans and works. Not only do they get conquered 
but the vessels from the house of God, those, those holy relics that they had, that they held in the temple, God allows those to be taken off to a foreign land. That the people recognize that they, who they thought were, because of Jerusalem and because of the temple, they thought they were invincible. They recognize that no, in fact, they aren't. That they had turned from God and they had lost his favor. Verse 3. It says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So a, a few things that are going on here. Now, obviously, that the Daniel, who most likely somewhere between the age of 15 and 17, that Daniel has this crisis in his life. That for the first 15 years of life, he's raised in Judah. He is this, this just kind of regular old kid. that He's, he's growing up. He's learning the Torah. He's, he's learning God's word. And then at 15 or 17, somewhere in that time, life changes drastically. That all of a sudden, his people, his land gets taken over, and he gets taken hundreds of miles away to a foreign land. Uh, imagine that at 15. Imagine you at that moment in life, and everything you have known to be true gets completely turned upside down. What happens? That word crisis is an interesting word, because if you look at the etymology of the word, that we always think of crisis as a bad thing, but it comes from this well, it originally comes from Greek, but then in Latin it was used as this word that simply meant a turning point. So on a medical crisis, it's a turning point in the case. That, that could be a good turning point or it could be a bad turning point. It's simply a moment where the direction of something changes. Daniel, at this moment in his life, is at a turning point. The direction of his life is going to change. Maybe you right now in life are in a turning point. Maybe the direction of your life right now has stopped and you're not really sure which direction that it's going to go. Maybe that's because of your work. Maybe that's because of a family situation. Maybe because of a social situation. But for whatever reason, a turning point. In many ways, our country is at this different turning points of what is going to happen. Where do we go from here? Now, it's interesting what Nebuchadnezzar did because really before this in history, oftentimes what a king would do when they conquered a land is they would simply go in and they would kind of try and lay slaughter to as many of the people as possible. Then they'd take a bunch of people as slaves, but they'd leave them as slaves. So as a way of kind of assimilating the people that he conquered to become a part of his kingdom, what he would do is he would go take over land. And then he would find the best, like the sharpest, the best looking, the, the, the most physically fit. And he would take whoever the best were and he would take them back to Babylon, to his kingdom. And he would raise them to become a part of his culture. 
It, it was this process where he, he was really trying to get them to become where they didn't, any, they no longer felt like they were these foreigners. They no longer felt like, so it, it, for Daniel's sake, he wanted to raise Daniel in a way where no longer Daniel thought of himself as this Jew, but instead he wanted to see him as a Chaldean. He wanted to see himself grow up and become just another member of Babylon. That this was Nebuchadnezzar's idea for conquering the world. That's actually exactly what Alexander the Great would ultimately do when he did conquer the world. That he would try and assimilate people's culture to become part of that Greek culture. Hellenization, that's, that's what it was. It became widespread over the entire world. And here's specifically what they did when they were trying to take these teenagers. There were these three methods they had to try and conform captives into their land. Three things. The first is that they'd overwhelm them. They would show them a couple things. They'd first show them the might of their army. They just, obviously their own land had just lost to this new army. They, they get shackled and start bring, bringing them back hundreds of miles. And over the course of that trip, they start to recognize the might of Babylon. Then they come into Babylon, and Babylon itself was just this beautiful, amazing, amazing place. It's a bigger city than any of these people had ever seen before in their entire life. One of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon, supposedly was just breathtaking. That his queen, Nebuchadnezzar's queen, who was a Midian queen, that she remembered the lush gardens of her homeland. And so he replicated that in Babylon, or so as the story goes. And so they would come in, they would see this massive kingdom, bigger than anything that they'd ever seen. They'd see these gardens that were an architectural wonder, that they would use the Euphrates River and, and they would pull up water and they would take them up to these different layers of tiered hanging gardens. And so they just overwhelmed them with the beauty and the wonder and the amazement. So first they overwhelm them. The second thing that they would do is they would rename them. We saw that happen with Daniel and his three friends. They said, okay, no longer is your name blank, now we're giving you a new name. The same thing is true with all four of them, that they had a name that represented something from their own religious upbringing, that, that Daniel means God will judge, and he gets this new name, and that new name is named after these pagan gods of Babylon. Your name has power. Have you ever gotten a nickname that stuck for life when someone just renames you it can be a good thing, and it can be a tragic thing. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I started out in my junior high school, and in that junior high school, the very first day of PE, our coach would go down the list of names, and he'd start giving people nicknames. Like, he's never even met these kids before. He'd just start giving them nicknames. And those nicknames that they got on that day would stick with him all the way through high school. Sometimes they were good nicknames, and sometimes they were bad nicknames. It didn't matter. But names have power. And so for someone to be renamed, it was showing them that we have power and authority, not only over who you are, but also over who you've been and who you will become. And then they educate them. They give them a completely new worldview from what they had. Everything that they, they had is, is kind of this base. In many different ways, they would unwind those teachings. 
They would try and pick apart a lot of the worldview that they had, and they'd try and remake it in a way that helped them to see no longer was their identity associated with their previous country, but now your identity is one of Babylon. You are a part of us. In this moment, what is going to happen with Daniel and his friends? Look in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Possibly the most important verse in the entire book of Daniel. What does it say? It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Pause for a second. Daniel has this posture that he's aligned with God in his life. That that moment right there in his life is this crisis. It's this turning point. He had to have had his mind made up, his heart made up prior to that moment to know which direction that he was going to go. Now here's what's interesting. We know from the verses above that these weren't the only people that were taken from Judah. There were multiple. It it says there in verse 3 that some of the people of Israel, in verse 6, it says among these. So we know it's not that these are the only four, yet these are the only four we know the names of. Why? Because it was easy for everybody else to just assimilate into that culture, especially at the age of 15. It's interesting, there's a book called The Body by Bill Bryce, and he talks all about different things from neurology to heart. It's a fascinating book, but, but here's what he says specifically about the brain, and specifically about the brain of a teenager. He says, the nucleus accumbens, a region of the forebrain associated with pleasure, grows to its largest size in one's teenage years. At the same time, the body produces more dopamine, the neurotransmitter that conveys pleasure, than it ever will again. That is why the sensations you feel as a teenager are more intense than at any other time of life. But it also means that seeking pleasure is an occupational hazard for teenagers. The leading cause of deaths among teenagers is accidents. And the leading cause of accidents is simply being with other teenagers. When more than one teenager is in a car, for instance, the risk of an accident multiplies by 400%. So Daniel's at that age. He is a teenager. That part of his brain that is wired towards pleasure, wired towards the short term, wired towards what's the easiest thing to fit in. That's how he's wired. He's 15 years old. Everybody else around him is jumping in on this. It doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal. See, he was raised to know the Old Testament law. So he knew what was clean food and unclean food, what was kosher. He knew that the food that he was supposed to eat was against God's law, that by eating it, he would be defiling himself. Now, I mean, this doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, right? It's not like they're asking him to murder somebody. Everybody else around him was saying, you know what? I mean, that's, sure, we weren't supposed to do this, but we're in a foreign land. We don't have much of an option. I'm sure God will understand. It was easy to rationalize. It was easy to see public perception go a certain direction and then jump right in with that. But verse 8 says, but Daniel... There was something different about Daniel, something different about his posture. 
That word posture is interesting because if you look at it as a noun, it's different than as a verb. As a noun, the word posture means a particular way of dealing with or considering something. It's an approach. It's an attitude. But the verb posture is to behave in a way that is intended to impress or mislead. You see, posture can be internal or it can be external. When we are posturing, we're trying to show people something that's not necessarily true. We're posturing or positioning ourselves. The easiest thing, the natural thing for Daniel to do in that moment would be the verb posture. To start posturing himself against everybody else. To try to make himself look good. To try and make himself look great. To try and lift himself up above everybody else. But because of the posture of his heart, the alignment of his heart towards God, he makes a different decision. Have you ever experienced posturing in your own life? Maybe you yourself have done some posturing. I remember a few years ago, uh, I went to a class at our gym. It was called HEAT. So it was this class that it did rounds, so you do rounds and, and you do a bunch of like lifting stuff or rope stuff. And so it, it meant to, to just get your heart rate really, really high. So I happened to go to 8 a.m. class. A guy named Brian, who was on our staff, convinced me to go. I show up to that 8 a.m. class, and we were like the only two dudes. Everybody else was like a middle-aged woman. Nothing against middle-aged women, but when you're like the only dude in a class of middle-aged women, you're just like, I feel a little bit awkward, but you're, you're committed. You can't leave at this point. And so you start working out, and, and at this point, it's kind of like that competitive nature. We're like, okay, I can't, I can't get smoked by everybody else. And the girl that was a trainer that was leading the class, her name was Gianna. Gianna's, she's probably here somewhere. Uh, she was like super fit, like fitness to this extreme. And so she's just rocking it. And I, so I'm just trying my best to keep up. And then I think we're done. Like, I think we've, we've made it. We, we've got to the end. I'm like, all right, that was, that was great. And they say, let's go outside and run some sprints. I was like, what? what, do you, what do, we're not done yet? And so we go outside to the field. And we start running sprints, and, and in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to let these people that are 15 years older than me beat me in, in sprinting, all right? At that point, I felt like I was a good athlete, maybe, sort of, or at least in my mind I did. And so, so right off the gate, first sprint, I'm, out, I'm, I'm right up there with everybody. Then we sprinted again and again and again. We ran like 20 sprints. By the end, it, it literally felt like my insides were about to come out to my outsides. Like, I felt like I was going to die. And I remember the moment where, where a few of them came over like, hey, are you all right? I'm like, me? Oh, this is nothing. I am so good right now. I feel great. I was totally posturing. I was making it seem like on the outside... The reality was very different than what I was actually feeling on the inside. I was out of shape. I was getting smoked by everybody, but I didn't want anybody else to know it or feel it. It's easy in life to posture. That's what most of us do. Most of us are so concerned about what everybody else thinks that we focus on the posture, the externals of our life, instead of focusing on the posture, the attitude, the internals of our life. Daniel demonstrates posture in his life. He demonstrates a posture of humility throughout his life. And as evidence with Daniel in the lion's den, what else does he demonstrate? A posture of prayer. That those two things, those attributes in Daniel's life set him apart. In that verse 8, it says that he resolved himself. 
What does that mean? That he firmly determines to do something. And it wasn't just because at that moment he made the decision. It was because he had this lifestyle, this attitude of humility and prayer. And so because the internals of his life were aligned with God, when he faced that crisis moment, when he faced the decision, in many ways, the decision had already been made. The temptation came, but because of the posture of his life, he was able to make the right decision. Most people don't do that. Most people, they, they try and start praying the moment the decision gets there. Instead of living a life and an attitude of prayer leading up to the moment. Most people in that moment go along with the crowd. There's an amazing quote by Theodore Roosevelt that says this. He says, it's better to dare mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. So most of us want to do, we want to fit in. Don't ruffle feathers. Let me just stick somewhere in the middle. That way I don't have to risk failing. I don't have to risk Everybody take a note. I'm just going to be right here. But what does it say Daniel did? He dared. He dared to step up and do something that was totally wild in the minds of everybody else. Verse 9, it says, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So the first time he gets the answer, he's like, hey man, no, it's not going to happen. Not going to do that. Daniel doesn't quit. Verse 11 says, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of these youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel chose to do something different. God rewarded it in his life. He gave him favor. There's a verse that we often quote. We talk about it all the time, Romans 12 too. Do not conform yourself to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we talk about that as if it's this kind of one-time decision. That in this one moment say, okay, I'm making a decision. I'm going to stop conforming to the world. I'm going to be transformed by God. And woo, here we go. But really, when you unpack it in Daniel's life right here, when we think of conforming and transforming, that really is about a lifestyle. It's about the posture in which you live your life. If you take a step back and say, okay, what are the parts of my life that are conforming me? And if I weigh that against the parts of my life that are transforming me, which one has more influence? Which more one is stronger? That if I look at the things that are naturally conforming me, 
the, the influences in my life, the things that I'm listening to, the things that I'm reading, the, the people that I'm spending my time around, my, my, everything from, from the news sources to the, the television sources to the movie sources, way up all the things that are conforming your mentality, your worldview, your opinions, weigh all that up. And then ask yourself, okay, now if I compare that to the amount of time I'm spending with God, the amount of time in my life that God, I'm giving over to him that he might be transforming me, the amount of time that I'm spending before God in a posture of humility and prayer, the amount of time I'm spending with God in the word of God, with God in corporate worship, with God in Bible study, how much of my life is being transformed by God and how much of my life is being conformed to the world around me. It's so easy in the moment of Daniel and his friends to say that we're in a new world, everybody else around us is doing it, even the people from their own country were doing it. Conforming at that moment would have been so, so easy. And that's often what we do. We do what's easy. We do what lets us fit in, what makes everybody else happy. We try and live, as Theodore Roosevelt said, in the gray. But what if there's another way? What if instead I can tune that out and say, no, I'm going to live a lifestyle that is constantly transforming into the image of God, that my thoughts and my words and my actions, that as God transforms my thoughts and my mindset and my worldview, that that would overflow into the words that come out of my mouth, and those words will help determine the actions that I take. And ultimately, those things combine together to determine the destiny of my life, the destination of where I'm going to go. In 1674, there was a guy named Jodicus von Lodenstein. If anybody here is maybe pregnant, looking for a name, Jodicus, it's available. It's uncommon. I'm just telling you, it, it would stand out. Jodicus was a great theologian, amazing, amazing sermons. He came up with a famous phrase. That phrase is this, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. It's Latin. It means the church reformed and always reforming. Oftentimes what the church uses it as, is it uses it as this picture of, okay, as culture is changing, Sometimes falsely people will say that as culture changes that the church needs to change. But that's not what the phrase means. The, the, the phrase became this understanding that as culture changes, the church needs to change by going back to Scripture. By constantly be reevaluating itself. By constantly turning back to Scripture and saying, what does Scripture actually say? It's being cautious that we don't just change willy-nilly with the culture around us. But that's not actually what Jodicus originally meant. He was originally talking about the heart. You see, he became concerned that there were people in his church that they saw true doctrine, that they attended worship at a true church, that they heard biblical teaching from a true biblical teacher, and yet they did not have true faith. For him, he was scared that the formalism of church that they had the right posture, the externals. They looked like everything was right and going the right direction on the outside. 
But his concern was that internally that the posture of their heart was wrong and that they were missing it. And it terrified him. It terrified him because he said, what if I have a whole church, a whole generation of people that on the outside they look great, but on the inside they're missing it. He said, that's exactly who the Pharisees were. I don't want that in my church. And so his heart cry became about people having a reformation of their heart. His heart cry became, hey, it's not about the externals. It's about the internals. It's all about this question. Is the posture of your heart aligned with God? Because if it's not, nothing else matters.